good morning. Good to see y'all this morning. Thank you for being here. I pray that you've had a good week. I pray that you've had a good morning. I pray that you have as much excitement and joy as those kids that are running down the hallway right now. If you have your Bibles, if you would, join me in Luke chapter 19 this morning. We're going to look at a text. Uh, Brother Shane read Mark's uh, recollection of this text or his account of this text just a little bit ago. This is what we would normally, you would think, on a liturgical calendar, look at next week as Palm Sunday. But we're going to look at it this morning. Uh, and there's, there's a reason for that as we build towards Easter uh, and celebrating Easter together. And you'll see that as we continue through this month. But uh, this morning, as we move closer, both in the text, uh, both both in Luke's gospel and in the time of uh, this year towards Easter, as we get closer to that most historic event in all of human history, as we get closer to celebrating uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, his sacrificial atoning death in our place, his resurrection that defeated death for all time, for all that believe in him, uh, that this text helps to call our heart to that, that helps to remind us of the importance of that event, of how amazing that is, helps us to celebrate him better. And, and something else, another side point almost, if you will, that I pray that we're reminded of this morning as we look in this text is the importance of knowing Scripture. We're going to see a couple of different things in this text today that we'll look at ancillary Scriptures that go with this, that, that if you don't know them, you can still understand this, but you don't understand it in its full richness. And so Amanda and I were just talking about this the other day, and I've told many of you this before. Sometimes people ask me, Brother Zach, what's, what's something that I can do What's a resource that I can get? What's something that I could have that would make me be able to understand Scripture better? And there are lots of study aids and helps and good study Bibles and whole Bible commentaries and many things of that nature, but I always stand firm on this. The best thing that you can do to be able to understand Scripture better is to spend more time reading Scripture. And I know you're like, well, Brother Zach, that's really not that helpful. But the more you know of Scripture the more you're able to understand Scripture. There are so many Scriptures that are interpreted best by other Scripture, right? And just like this text, when you read this and you recognize some of the other texts that are being uh, alluded to here, it gives it a fullness and a richness that doesn't have otherwise. So I pray that if you're committed to really wanting to be a better student of the Scripture, that you'll just spend more time reading and studying Scripture. Uh, I think that you'd be amazed at finding how much it'll help you. So I pray we see that this morning as well. But look with me at the text, Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near 
already on the way down on the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray together before we consider this text. Father God, thank you again for the gift that your word is to us. Father, holy and inspired, truly your word, that we can trust that everything in it is perfectly true. Father, that we can trust that everything that we need for life and godliness is contained in these scriptures. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as we look at these together, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand them. Father, that you would allow my speech to be clear and my words to be true. Lord, that the things that I say would not get in the way of the truth of your scripture. And, Father, that your people today, that we would all be edified and built up and nurtured because of what we find here together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what we see here when we look in this text, it starts out with what to many of us might seem like some obscure notes, right? It's talking about uh, where they are, Bethany and Bethpage, and some, some places that we've never heard of, um, or at least we're not that familiar with. So we've got these places, and he mentions them, and we say, okay, well, maybe we just skip over that, because a lot of times we do that. And then there's the, uh, the whole deal about the cult, and you say, what? Well, was, what's that about, right? You know, is it just showing that Jesus knows everything that he knew that the cult would be there? Is that kind of what's happening? Why, why is it that God inspired Luke to write this entire piece that, you know, several sentences and several verses here about there being a cult that Jesus sent them to go get and how they got the cult and how they procured it? Why is this important? Now, I want, to see, I want us to see together in just a few minutes that, that those are not obscure facts. Those are not things to be skipped over. Those are things that are important that help for us to understand this. But I do want to start, as we look at this text, with the thing that probably draws our attention the most. And then we'll look at those. I want us to look at the, the praising of the crowd, right? The excitement upon the triumphal entry here into Jerusalem as we see uh, those things that we talk about and as we think about them laying palm branches and laying their cloaks and coats on the ground before him and, and shouting, right, and praising him and saying these things. I want us to look at that and then we'll look and see how these other things help us to understand what all is going on here. So we see here, right, this is what we normally think of on Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and as he's coming into Jerusalem... There is a lot of celebrating. The disciples are celebrating. Matthew tells us that the whole city was stirred up. Now, that does not mean that the whole city was celebrating Jesus' arrival. We see that in the way that the Pharisees respond. Even in the midst of all this celebration, there were some that were probably just curious, and there were some that were opposed, but his disciples were excited, and his disciples were praising him. And so I want us to look and see in this reaction of the disciples... What do we learn about Jesus? What is Luke, what is God's word telling us about Jesus and the reaction of these disciples? So look with me specifically at verse 37. And it tells us what, what they had in mind that brought about this great celebration. It says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. I want to stop there for just a moment before we look at verse 38. So, so what we see here is that the crowd, at least the part of the crowd that were his disciples, these that had been with him, that had spent time with him, as they're seeing him coming down the Mount of Olives and headed into Jerusalem, they start to recall... They start to remember all of the amazing and miraculous things that Jesus had done. They, they begin to remember who Jesus was that's greatly displayed and revealed through the miracles that he had done. So they start to think about Jesus, right? He had made lame men whose legs didn't work able to get up and walk. And he had made blind men who couldn't see able to see. And he had cast out demons and he had healed all sorts of sicknesses and diseases and infirmities. And he had walked on water. right? And he had commanded the wind to stop and the waves to stop. And he always, always knew where all the fish were. Right now, it's spring. And some of you have spent a lot of time fishing. And some of you sometimes know where the fish are. And sometimes you don't. But you know, Jesus would always... We see it multiple times, cast your nets over yonder. And you know what happened when they cast their nets over there? They found the fish. Jesus, some of you understanding this better than others, miraculously always knew where the fish were. He taught with authority like none other that they'd ever seen, right? They were amazed at the authority. They were amazed at the boldness and the clarity with which Jesus taught. They were amazed at the scripture that he fulfilled. And we see some more of that than maybe his contemporaries did. But the miraculous, one of the miraculous things about Jesus' life is that he fulfilled scripture, prophecy after prophecy that we see and the scriptures, their scriptures in that day and time, our scriptures as well, the Old Testament. And then here, as they recall all of these things, as they think about all of these things and seeing all that he had done and who it revealed Jesus to be, they were, they were moved. It says that they began to rejoice and praise him with a loud voice for all these mighty works that they had seen. And I believe that these miraculous works and that these things do show us that Jesus is truly God. Right? We've already seen that. We looked at that last week. We spent time looking at the fact that Jesus is God, the Lamb of God. He has always been. He will always be. He's the only one that has this sort of ability, that has this sort of authority, because He is God. And as they see Him coming into Jerusalem, I think they were reminded of these facts. But then in verse 38, we see something specific that the, that the crowd says that these disciples say that show us even more about who Jesus is. Verse 38 says, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, here's, here's a place that knowing scripture helps enrich our understanding of what's going on here. So this that they are saying here, they are quoting from Psalm 118. And so in Psalm 118, verse 26, we find these words. And what we find there, that, that part of Psalm 118 was used as a, uh, a ritual whenever the people that were pilgrims that would travel back to Jerusalem for the feast three times a year when they would arrive there, someone from the temple would come to them and say, 
these words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was a greeting. If, if you understand it uh, that way, it was them saying, welcome home. Take a load off. You have finally made it here. And so Jesus, who's been traveling for many days, who's been traveling for a long period now, trying to get to Jerusalem, headed to Jerusalem, and he finally gets to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, there's not just one person at the temple, but all of the disciples are shouting out loud and praising him together and saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it's a welcome home. You are here to the place that you've been headed to. But if you are familiar with Psalm 118.26, then you'll notice that there's a difference. I want to read to you that verse. Psalm 118.26 says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. But then whenever you look here in Luke 19.38, there's one word that's different and what the crowd says. Anybody know what the word is? Anybody notice it? King. Right? They don't say, blessed is he who comes. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And in the crowd's thinking and their remembrance of these wonderful miracles that they have seen and taken part in, and in their proclamation, we're reminded of this truth. Point one this morning. Jesus is both God and King. Now, I think that this is somewhat somewhat like we saw with John last week, whenever John saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I told you that I don't know that John fully understood the beauty of what he was saying. I don't know that he was, he was really able to grasp the fullness of Jesus as the Lamb of God because he had not seen the crucifixion like we have. He was not able to read that account at that point. Now, I, I think this crowd is the same way. They, they recognize Jesus as king, but I don't know for sure that all the disciples in this crowd understood exactly the fullness of what they were saying. But this beautiful proclamation reminds us that Jesus is God, and he is. He has always existed. He will always exist. Everything that has ever been created was created through him and was created for him. We are promised that in Scripture. He is God, and he is also king. He's the king of Israel, and he's the king of the universe. He's the king of everything. He is the one that had been promised that would come, and that would put the government on his shoulders, and that the increase of his rule and his government, and that the increase of the peace that he would bring, there would be no end to it, right? That it would continue on forever. He is the one that they had been waiting for for so long. So Jesus is God, Jesus is king. We see that in the reaction of the crowd here. So now I want us to look back at this whole episode about the cult, right? So we're seeing that Jesus is God, Jesus is King, Jesus is here in Jerusalem. What's the deal with the cult? So Jesus, he sends a couple of disciples, I want you all to go and you'll find this cult here and untie it and tell them that the Lord has need of it. And they go and they find it just like they said and bring it. I think it does remind us. That Jesus knows everything, right? That he is aware of everything, of all the surroundings, of everything that ever happens because he's God. But there's more to it than that. I want to read to you from Zechariah 9.9. Now, I said a minute ago, if any of you are familiar with Psalm 118.26, 
I was going to be impressed if any of you were familiar with Psalm 118.26. If any of you are familiar with Zechariah 9.9, I'm going to be even more impressed. But I pray that before you leave here today that you will be. Listen to what this verse says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Well, that's fitting, isn't it? Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in this prophecy, we start to see the richness of what's taking place here, don't we? So, so we're, it's, it makes sense. He's headed into Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem are shouting out loud and are excited that he's there. That makes sense. We see that he is the king and that is it's said in what the people shouted and it said here that the king is coming to you. We've seen that he was mounted on a colt. And this says that the king that's coming will be mounted on a colt. So all of those things match up. But one thing that we see in this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that we haven't seen yet is that Jesus isn't just some other king. He's not just the new king that's coming into the capital city to take over by force and be the new king. Right? He is the king that has always been the king. He is the king that is the promised seed of the woman from the garden. Right? The promise that, that your seed would strike the head of Satan. He is the descendant of Abraham when God said, Through your lineage, all families of the earth will be blessed. That that was talking about Jesus. That he is the root of Jesse. He is the more perfect David. He is the promised one that was coming. The one that was born of a virgin. He is the Lamb of God. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The long-awaited Messiah who doesn't just come to reign as king, but who came to bring salvation to his people. Because Zechariah 9.9 said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And in this, we're reminded of this. And Jesus is riding on this colt. We see that it's not just some obscure fact, but it's a reminder that he is the king that came to bring salvation to his people. Point two, Jesus is both King and Savior. We've seen that He's God, we've seen that He's King, and now we see that this King is bringing salvation to His people. And so, no wonder that there should be shouts of praise. No wonder that they should say, Hosanna, this proclamation of praise to God. No wonder... That whenever the Pharisees said, Jesus, rebuke your disciples and tell them to be quiet. No wonder that Jesus replied and said, There's, I'm not going to rebuke them. It's fitting that they should do this. If they didn't shout out loud, the rocks would shout out loud because this is coming. I am the king and I'm here to offer salvation to our people. This is what all of creation has been waiting for ever since the fall, brothers and sisters. So even the rocks themselves were excited about what was taking place here. And Jesus said, somebody's going to shout about it. Somebody is going to be excited about this. This is a journey that Jesus has been headed, on, headed for for a while and we see that in this text. Something else that we see here, the last thing I want to make sure that we see, is that 
this first part where Luke's giving us the setting of where they are. Right, verse 29, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet, that's not just an obscure fact either. That's not something to just put out there because it needs to be put out there. This was an important road marker on what was taking place. So let me give you a couple of other texts for background. Luke 9.51 says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this idea that as Jesus was preparing to return back to heaven, he headed to Jerusalem. And then later in Luke, and there are a couple of others, but for time's sake, I'm just going to give you one more. Luke 18.31 says this, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked, and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what, he was, say, what was said. You see, Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem with a purpose. For, for many days, for a long time now, this is where he's been headed. He has done other things. He has done miracles. He has saved other people. He has preached the word, but he's done it while he was headed towards Jerusalem. And he was headed towards Jerusalem with a purpose. Everything that we've seen from Luke 9.51 till now has been building up to this point. Building up to when he would get to Jerusalem because he knew what was going to take place when he got there. All right, let me give it to you a different way. Have any of you ever seen a movie where there's a really clear good guy and there's a really clear bad guy, and the whole movie, they're getting closer together, and you can tell in the very end there's going to be this, this great showdown where the two of them fight, and everything's building and anticipation is building for that climactic event. Have y'all ever seen a movie like that? Y'all like, no, we don't watch movies with bad guys and killings. I understand. One of my favorite movies of all time, Brother Don and I talked about this the other day, the movie Gladiator. Y'all ever seen the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe? Some of y'all like, I don't know if I can say that or not. It's not like a test. It's a trick question. So in that movie, just real quick, give you a, a synopsis of the plot. You have this guy, and he's a great guy. He's a good guy. He's a general, and he serves well, and he's dedicated to his family, and he's dedicated to his country, and he leads well. And then you have a bad guy, and the bad guy is a really, really bad guy. He, he lies, and he deceives, and he takes his own father's life so he can become the emperor. And then he, the really good guy, of course, he doesn't like him, so he has them try to execute him, and he has that man's family killed. And, and he's just, the bad guy is as bad as any bad guy gets. And the good guy is as good as any good guy gets. Well, the good guy gets away from the execution, and he becomes a gladiator in Roman days. And so he's, he's the whole movie... He fights in a small arena and wins, and so he goes to a little bit bigger arena and wins, and, and nobody knows who he is. He's just this obscure man who's really good at fighting. But the whole time you can see that he's getting closer and closer to Rome, to the great Colosseum to fight there. And, and then one day he finally gets to go, and he's going to the Colosseum, and the bad guy is there. 
He's in the crowd as the emperor watching over what's going to take place this day. And as the gladiator is walking through the tunnel into the arena to fight, you can see it's finally here. These two men are going to show down. And it's going to be good. Because you know what's going to happen. Right? You know the good guy is going to prevail. I don't want to tell you what happens in case you've never seen it. I will tell you to be careful. There's a lot of fighting and a lot of blood and that sort of thing if you've never seen it. But in the end, these two guys fight. And what we see here in Luke 9, it says that when Jesus knew that the day was drawing near, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he said, that's where I need to go. That's where I need to be. And then he tells the disciples, listen, when we get there, the showdown's going to take place. They're going to take me. And they're going to beat me. And they're going to flog me. And they're going to crucify me. And they didn't understand what he's talking about. They didn't understand what was going on. But as we look at this, we understand it. And so when Luke says they were now at Bethany, it's a step closer. That's really close to Jerusalem. And they were at Bethpage. And that's really close to Jerusalem. And he says, as he was headed down the Mount of Olives, they all started to shout because you're starting to see this is like the gladiator walking out of the tunnel. Jesus is here. He's going into the city and we know what's going to happen. When he gets to the city, he's going to Golgotha. He's going to the place of the skull. The, the great enemy, sin, is going to do battle with the great good the righteous King Jesus. They're going to battle at that place. And when he got there, he went to that cross, brothers and sisters, and he took all of the sins that we've committed on himself. And he took the punishment for all of our sins. And this was the great battle, the great showdown between good and evil, between Christ and sin. And he won. Thought somebody would be excited. He won our sin. That we've committed. The punishment that we deserve. He took it on himself when he was on that cross. But he didn't stop there because once he came down from the cross, now there was a battle with death. The other great evil. Right? You watch a movie and they kill the bad guy. Now there's another bad guy. And Jesus defeats sin and now there's death. And they put him in the tomb. In Joseph's tomb. It's like for three days we don't know what's going on. The disciples are sad. They think he's gone. But then they go on the third day. And you know what? The tomb was empty. It was empty. He defeated death. He defeated sin. And he defeated death. And one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, Romans 1, 17 and 18. John tells us this. John is, is getting the vision of the great revelation. And he sees Jesus for the first time. And he, it's like he just faints. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I, di I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Point three this morning is, Jesus is the conquering Savior King. Brothers and sisters, he is the king, but he's not just the king of Israel. He is the king of everything. He is the one that has conquered, and he has conquered everything that you and I should fear. 
We fear sin and how it makes us do things that we don't want to do. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have no fear of sin anymore because sin has no more power over us. He's defeated it. It's done with. And whenever we fear death because every man that's ever lived has at some point in his life feared death. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's no more fear of death. It's gone because death is not an end it's a beginning of eternal life. It's the beginning of the promise that we've been waiting for all of our lives. So when we see this, when we understand that Jesus is the Savior King riding on a donkey, riding on a colt, coming to Jerusalem to face the greatest evil that there's ever been in sin, the, the greatest fear that there's ever been in death, and to be victorious over them, all of a sudden we understand why the crowd was shouting. We understand why the, the disciples were taking off their coats and laying it on the ground to say that it's not worthy that this man would even have to walk or have his coat walk on the ground, that we would give everything we have for this man. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the promised one that they had waited for, and he's the promised king that we've waited for. We're waiting for Him to return. We're waiting for the day when all the evil and all the things that we deal with in this life will be no more. But I have to give you this disclaimer that we always have to remind you of. That this conquering of sin and this conquering of death is not for everybody. I want you to understand that. Not every person that you meet has completely been able to overcome sin in their life. Not every person that you meet has killed sin to the point that it has no power over them, had broken the, the bonds of slavery to sin. Not everyone you meet's in that boat. Not every person that you know, not every person that you work with, not every person that you go to school with is free from the fear of death. Not every one of them, when they die, will experience the glory of eternal life with God forever. Only those that have responded in faith to Jesus Christ's will. So brothers and sisters, as we celebrate this this morning, as we celebrate the great good of Easter, and the victory that Christ won there, we're reminded of this, we need to share this message. There are many people that you will meet today and tomorrow and throughout this week that do not know Jesus Christ. I pray that you share them with them. It's actually a, a specific challenge that I have for you for the month of April. As we think about Easter as it's on our mind over and over, I pray that every single one of us will look for one opportunity to tell somebody about Christ and one opportunity to ask somebody to come and join us for our Easter celebration here. I pray that you would do that. I pray that you will take that seriously. That can be somebody that you talk to on the Internet. It can be somebody that you run into at the grocery store. It can be your mom, dad, brother, sister. It can be somebody that you don't know at all. But pray and look for an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. Pray and look for an opportunity to invite somebody to come and celebrate Easter with us. We have nothing to celebrate if we don't have Easter, brothers and sisters. So we celebrate it big, and I pray that we celebrate it wide. We invite others to come and celebrate it with us. But I also recognize that maybe somebody is here this morning and you've never been able to celebrate Easter the way that you should celebrate Easter because you've never known victory over sin and death through faith in Jesus Christ. But this morning, 
through this word that Christ has called you to respond to him. I would love to talk to you about that. If you have some questions, I'll be here in just a moment when we have a time of response. Come and ask me those questions. Or we can set up a time to meet later, but don't leave here without us setting up a time that we can meet and discuss those things. Maybe some of you are here this morning and the Lord has revealed something in you that you know that you need to make right. You can spend this time praying where you are. You can come here and pray. I'll pray with you. That would be a fitting way to, to respond to this. But also I know that there's some of you here this morning as, as we stand together. Maybe there's some of you here this morning they are just thankful. You're just thankful for who Christ is and for what he's done. For this beautiful promise. And you just want to sing in response to him. And that's a fitting promise and a fitting response too. But I want you to do whatever the Lord's leading you to do during this time of response as Brother Shane leads us in a hymn of response.